If you've been listening to the pod, you know that enjoying relevant television series when everyone else is enjoying them is just not in my filmic televisual DNA. It's a flaw that I have when everybody's interested in something, a contrarian nature in my personality kicks in and I have to wait until I can sort of discover it on my own. I'm aware of this flaw. I have recently attempted to explore whether this flaw has any basis in reality through viewing two series, one being The White Lotus, which I did an episode on, which of course ended up being something that I loved so much and thought was so brilliantly done. So hilariously funny, a brilliant biting satire that really never put a foot wrong and tried to do some extremely complicated things and ended up doing them very, very well. And Succession, which everybody around me has been telling me for over a year, you have to watch Succession. You have to watch Succession. And I don't know why I couldn't or didn't during the time. It wasn't simply just that everyone was telling me to watch it. I did eventually try to watch it, and I only got about two and a half or three minutes into episode one of season one before I turned it off. And that lasted, you know, maybe three or four months before I then attempted, really after the White Lotus experience, to say, well, let me let me try this. Let me stick with this and see what's what's there. I think it actually was it was prompted by another aspect of my personality, which is even though I hadn't watched the show at the time, when The New Yorker put out its now famous or infamous hit piece on the actor Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall Roy in Succession, I was outraged. It struck me as such an unnecessary hit piece attacking someone for the perceived crime of being good at their job and picking apart their acting process as if this magazine writer or any of us really has any insight or right to tell anybody as an actor what they should or shouldn't do in terms of ginning themselves up to deliver the performance on screen that they're being hired to perform. And if Jeremy Strong is an intense and tightly wound actor who approaches everything with the utmost seriousness, well, having now watched all three seasons of Succession, I can tell you it's absolutely worth it because what he puts on the screen, no one else can give you. So if you think that's part of the job of an actor, then maybe you should pat the guy on the back instead of trying to kick him down for such perceived slights as, you know, coming from a small town in Massachusetts and having the ambition and the belief to believe he can accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish as an actor because the piece sort of attempts to tear down moments of ambition or putting together a future for himself in a way that he had to do in order to succeed. So anyway, after I read that, I sort of, that, that inspired me. My, the set that I took against that New Yorker piece inspired me to go back and finally give Succession another chance. And also I should say the voices particularly the voices of my colleagues here at work who on our weekly call have just constantly been saying, you've got to give it another shot. You've got to give it a shot. And so listening to Paul and Brian and everyone who really, you know, uh, loved the series, I figured, you know, these people are rarely 
if ever wrong. So it must be me that's wrong. So let me sit down and try and give this a shot. So I did. Now, before I get into my thoughts on having watched all three seasons, I want to also share another funny aspect of why I was maybe turned off to the concept of watching the show. I've talked previously in my episode about uh, what's the Adam McKay sky is falling Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Don't look up uh, that I have kind of a set against Adam McKay produced material and seeing his name on Succession sort of turned me off, I think unfairly, because clearly Succession is much more the product of its primary creator and writer than it is something that to me feels like it has the fingerprints of Adam McKay on it. But I, I still have this set against Adam McKay. I recently just got fed a, a news article uh, that's from a Vanity Fair interview that McKay did in, I think, November of 2021. And of course, it made headlines at the time, or I guess it's making headlines now because, you know, there's been this rift apparently between Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, who founded Funny or Die and Gary Sanchez Productions and had a bit of a comedy empire. And then as Adam McKay's film directing career took off, uh, apparently there was a rift. They ended up dissolving the businesses and the partnerships. And in this article, uh, Adam McKay himself tells the story of the rift that he understands exists between him and Will Ferrell. And I'm only mentioning this because he specifically goes into great detail in this article. This is not an article written by a writer who is sort of saying sources say this happened. I mean, he's directly quoted here into, on his behalf, I guess, admittedly, what his part of it is. So you may have seen the trailers recently for a forthcoming Apple series called Showtime, which is about the Showtime Magic Johnson era Los Angeles Lakers, which is a very storied period in American basketball and in Dr. Jerry Buss, the then owner of the Lakers, who's now deceased, you have admittedly a very sleazy 70s, 80s American persona that would be pretty ripe for an accurate depiction. And whether or not this series is going to kind of go into enough detail or be based enough in reality to sort of have, you know, an underpinning that I think could transcend the genre of a sports series or a basketball series remains to be seen. The trailer is pretty damn good, I have to say, even as someone who sort of looks at any Adam McKay material and views it a bit askance. The trailer is very well done. The way it's shot, if that's indeed the way the series is shot, uh, I love the period look, the kind of grainy film look, the videotape look. If that's what they're going for, the casting seems right. Maybe it's going to be good. Now, speaking of the casting, that turns out to be the root of this rift that existed between Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. So as McKay himself says, while they were breaking up their various businesses, they had been producing Showtime. And Ferrell, Will Ferrell is a huge Laker fan. And he had his heart set on the role of Jerry Buss, the, quote, legendary 80s team era owner. I quote now from the article. As Gary, after Gary Sanchez Productions dissolved, however, the Lakers show moved under McKay's new production banner, Hyper Object Industries. And Pharrell, it turns out, was, why do we keep saying Pharrell? Will Ferrell, Will Ferrell, Will Ferrell, not Pharrell, Will Ferrell. And Ferrell, it turns out, was never McKay's first choice for the role of Dr. Jerry Buss. Quote, the truth is, the way the show was always going to be done, it's hyper-realistic, he says. And Farrell just doesn't look like Jerry Buss. 
And he's not that vibe of a Jerry Buss. And there were some people involved who were like, quote, we love Farrell. He's a genius, but we can't see him doing it. It was a bit of a hard discussion. The article goes on to say that the actor McKay wanted for Buss was John C. Riley, who looks more like the real thing and who is also, in a little bit of Hollywood twisting of the knife, Will Farrell's best friend. But McKay hesitated, quote, didn't want to hurt his feelings, he says flatly. Wanted to be kind and respectful. Then the article goes on to say, in the end, he cast Riley in the role anyway without tearing, telling Farrell first. Farrell was infuriated. Quote, I should have called him and I didn't, says McKay. Quote, and Riley did, of course, because Riley, he's a stand-up guy. McKay laments, quote, I fucked up on how I handled that. It's the old thing of keeping your side of the street clean. I should have just done everything by the book. In my head, I was like, we'll let this all blow over. Six months to a year, we'll sit down, we'll laugh about it and go, it's all business junk. Who gives a shit? We worked together for 25 years. Are we really going to let this go away? He continues, quote, Farrell took it as a way deeper hurt than I ever imagined. I tried to reach out to him and I reminded him of some slights that were thrown my way that were never apologized for. The whole time it was like I was saying it out loud. Let's not become an episode of Behind the Music. Don't let it happen. And it happened. He then goes on to say, quote, maybe there was a little shadow in there where I wasn't able to confront a harsher, darker side of myself that would ultimately err on the side of making the right casting choice over a lifelong friendship. Now, there's so much to unpack here in these quotes, because A, if you're going to apologize in an article, apologize in the article, but don't say I, quote, reminded him of some slights that were thrown my way that were never apologized for. And then also don't say, that, you know, oh, maybe I did have this dark side where I wasn't able to be aware that there's a harsher, darker side of myself that would err on the side of making the right casting choice over a lifelong friendship. He's kind of putting a spin on it there as if, you know, the friend choice would have been to hire the guy he never thought was right for the part to begin with. When the whole point is, it's, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. It's not that you made a mistake, it's how you clean up after your mistake. It's not that John C. Riley isn't absolutely a better casting choice for Dr. Jerry Buss in terms of his look and all that he's able to embody than Will Ferrell, because I believe that's true. But it's how you go about it. It's how you do your business. And whether those things that I read in this article as an aside have anything to do with the reasons I sometimes don't like some of his stuff, I don't know. So anyway, that's a digression, but I'm just mentioning that because... Before I dived into Succession, I sort of saw that name and I thought, ah, I'm not going to be into this. Just like I wasn't really into Don't Look Up or Vice or The Big Short, which incidentally also features an excellent Jeremy Strong performance in a completely 180 different personality type, just to give you an indication of how good an actor Jeremy Strong really is. If you watch The Big Short, watch again for how believably Jeremy Strong embodies the big swinging dick caricature of a sleazy Wall Street trader. And can, can compare and contrast that with some of his other roles or certainly his role in succession. So anyway. The other admittedly petty reason I didn't watch succession, and I have to be a little bit careful here, is because Succession's post-production team and some of its production team were located in and around our offices over the previous year and a half. And it was kind of a funny situation because 
just around the pandemic uh, or soon after the pandemic, we moved our office to a new location. And given that we were in a pandemic, I just took a, a few offices because I knew or presumed that not everyone on our team was going to be coming into work every day. And indeed, even after I took my office and two other offices, we didn't come in for many, many, many months. I don't think I came back to the office until after being fully vaccinated, probably April of May 2021. So in between kind of that March 2020, May 2021 period, when our offices were just sort of sitting here locked, but clearly marked Meeting House Productions, uh, some of the Succession production team moved in around us, and they took most of the other available office space on our floor. So when we turned back up, I started getting reports because some of the other people on my, on my team were coming into the office a little bit before I did. I started getting kind of funny reports that like weren't really being met with the most open, outwardly friendly greeting. There's a thing that happens sometimes, and you may know this yourself, uh, if you live in an apartment building, maybe it's it's familiar, where sometimes people adopt this very weird sort of walled off thing where you could live next door to someone but never speak to them or even acknowledge them because you don't really have the space, certainly in New York City, to call your own. You sort of create this psychological space sometimes that you pretend exists, and in doing so, somehow you feel you've carved out some space. It happens in shared office environments too. And our company has been in a shared office environment since it was founded in 2007, 2008, long before this WeWork concept ever existed. This was something that's common, or at least was common in New York City at the time, at least at the company that we rent our space from, where project by project, you could rent space as needed, use it for as long as you want or as little as you want, let it go if you weren't using it, expand if you needed it, so on and so forth. So it was kind of funny to me that I was getting reports that some of the folks involved with the show were not the most friendly or outgoing. It wouldn't even do things like just say hello when passing in the hall. So when I came back uh, myself to the office somewhat full time, I noticed this. I'm not going to name names, but you can see the names on the credits. There was this weird sort of disconnect. Now, I don't know whether the disconnect comes from the fact that, you know, they're working on a big, fancy, super popular HBO show that wins all the awards. Sometimes when people work on TV shows, they can become confused and think that the show they're working on is representative of their own value as an individual and a human being. I don't know if that's what's going on. We just make our little TV shows here at Meeting House Productions. We don't we don't win the awards. You know, all we've managed to do is be a going concern for some, what, 14 years now and create a few franchises that have done pretty well for ourselves and for our employees and for our broadcast partners. And we don't put on airs and we don't pretend to be anybody that we're not. And we are generally uh, welcoming open-minded folks who are happy to share in the communal nature of our cohabited, cohabitive office space, okay? One of the things that was funny when, when I did come in was, I mean, granted, these folks were basically the only ones that were here at the time in the office, yet everything that could be construed as like a public item that was theirs had a label maker label on it that said succession. And I'm talking salt and pepper shakers, uh, a napkin holder, 
everything from that to air purifiers, hand sanitizers, there was that playing into it too, which was a bit like, I'm not going to watch this show. There's that too, which is kind of funny. So anyway, a few weeks ago, I decided to remedy this fault of my own and get involved and sit down and try to get into succession. Now, what happened the first time when I tried to watch it and I couldn't get past really the first scene with Kendall and then Roman coming in, it just threw me off. This business, because this is sort of, this is a business that, you know, the media business, that's the business I'm in. I've certainly been in and around plenty of meetings, plenty of uh, sales pitches, acquisition meetings, all kinds of different things over the years, working in different capacities in the industry. So seeing the Kendall Roy character and then seeing the Roman character enter in, these two characters, I just like, who, who are, this This is not realistic. Like what what I knew of the series and that it's, it's based essentially on a Murdoch type family that controls, you know, a right leaning news empire and the fight for succession amongst the children uh, against the patriarchal figure, you know, these these characters were just so cartoonish that I found it off-putting. And it wasn't until I was able to sit down and really watch really much of season one that I kind of understood what Karen Culkin was doing. I kind of understood that these two characters were appropriately doing exactly what they would do in that situation. And I guess you could say it's kind of a bold choice on behalf of the filmmakers that they just hit you right in the first scene. Season one, episode one. These are who these people are. And you better get used to it. Now, in retrospect, I think it's fair to say that the characters are so original in their way that that was what was a little off-putting to me at first. That they didn't kind of find a way in. You're just hit right in the face that, like, this is a ridiculous person. Oh, and here's another ridiculous person who's his brother. And they're going to do and say ridiculous things. Now, in the business setting of the show, I found that kind of off-putting. Uh, but once I watched past that a few episodes and I kind of got a handle on who was supposed to be who, I think that that went away to some extent. Uh, but it wasn't until I would say, but it wasn't until episode nine of season one that I said, okay, now it has crossed over into something great. That's the Shiv's wedding episode with Kendall about to launch the bear hug takeover. The first takeover of, I guess, three, one per season. We'll get to that later. So it took much of that first season to kind of get it going. And everyone always said to me beforehand, like, oh, you got to keep watching. Like, it doesn't really get great until season two, season three. Is that true? I don't know. I think there were great character things all the way through. Uh, in the balance, I would say season two to me is definitely probably the best of the three seasons. But I think season three also has moments. But I think season three became where things started to get repetitive and I kind of wished that different branches had been grown and explored rather than doing what kind of feels like something we've already done twice, which is like, oh, here's another takeover attempt by some group of the family members. So we'll get to that anyway. And I think this is where a, a conversation that I had a bit in my Gamora episode is relative, because, relevant because you know, I mentioned in my Gamora episode that one of the things I found particularly impressive about Gamora was that I found over its five seasons, it kind of actively resisted what's referred to as fan service. So in a sense, a show becomes successful 
and certain things resonate with audiences or on Twitter. And it's very natural for everyone to give people more of what they want, right? Gomorra, in a strange way, I would love to talk to the creators to find out if this was a conscious choice or is it just a, a European thing as opposed to an American thing? I'm not sure. There are big, big differences, by the way, in how scripted series are approached in America versus how they are approached almost everywhere else in the world. And by that, I mean American series, by and large, are just not as smartly constructed and put together as series produced elsewhere in the world. American sensibilities, I'm afraid to tell you, I know this will come as a news flash to a lot of you, they're not the most sophisticated, even amongst the literati and the East Coast elite who are soaking up HBO and Apple Plus limited series. Uh, there's a lot of hand-holding and dumbing down typically. And I think when you watch a lot of European series, uh, there is a level of intelligence presumed of the viewer that gives the writers, the actors, the filmmakers a little bit more hand to do things that to me are personally more interesting. And of course, there's always exceptions, but in general, I find this to be true. And in the fan service issue with Gamora, I thought Gamora always managed to avoid just doing what viewers naturally are going to respond to while still giving us what we're interested in in the series. I wonder a bit in succession if fan service became a little bit more of a thing as we got through season one, two, and three, and, and the reaction to the series started to be what it was. Because, of course, we all want more scenes with Tom and Greg. I mean, I want that. Secret, Greg? Yeah. But not top secret. Interesting. Just secret. That's smart. Just so people know, you know, that these are secret. They're secret, yeah. I don't know, because sometimes the janitors, they come and they throw stuff out. And, uh, but th look, the, the actual envelope says receipts. Ooh, but they're not, in fact, receipts. <gasps> Greg, you're a criminal mastermind. What polyglot genius could ever hope to crack your impenetrable code? Shut oh, up. God. Easy. Sorry. Uh, a little bit jittery. Mm -hmm. uh, Bit of a stress come mm -hmm. down. You know, mm -hmm. I, I uh, got a haircut. Uh, even though I didn't really need a haircut, I think I just right. wanted someone to touch my head, you know, soothing. And um, I guess uh -huh. I found it a little Great. bit stressful. Great. So here's and... my thing, Greg. You know the papers, the copies? I want them. Uh-huh. Yeah. I did my part of the deal. You got the office. You put your little Gustav Klimt poster up there, and now it's time for me to habeas the corpus. No, I... right, right. I, I, I mean, I just guess... Uh, I, I just guess that they're like my insurance policy. Yeah, but you don't need an insurance policy. Well, in case things were to turn nasty. They're not going to turn nasty, okay? No one's going to break your legs, you know. Okay, well, that feels a bit nasty. That's one well that the series has gone back to so much over the course of all three seasons, but it, it's never dried up. I mean, I can still appreciate a great Tom and Greg scene. And by and large, the scenes don't disappoint. So it's hard to call that a criticism. But in a way, it's more of some of the repetitive rhythms that I think the series sort of has repeated over season two and season three, where here we have another attempted coup. Here we have Logan Roy outsmarting it again. And to do that once, twice, three times, it's got to be going somewhere different each time. And I'm not sure that it has. 
in season four, perhaps we're going to see some of these tendrils play out. Tom has obviously made a big move at the end of season three. Greg is in a different position. The children are in a different position. Are they going to be unified? Jerry has some ammunition against Roman that hasn't been deployed yet. Why is that? So maybe in season four, it's going to get more interesting and continue to evolve. I hope for the series sake, it doesn't just simply kind of repeat these rhythms out of the assumption that that's what people want. You know, we want the kids to attempt a big coup and then we want them to fall apart while they attempt to put the pieces together. And the other big issue that I tend to have with Succession is that the business side of the story for me is underdeveloped and is always lacking. And it's it's hard to offer this as a criticism because this is what I guess the showrunner wants to do. He wants to tell this sort of satirical uh, succession story and in doing so send up aspects of American media culture and family dynamics. And it does that. But for a show so obviously based on the Murdoch family, it, it does feel like a flaw to me that all four of the children in their own way are just completely not at all obvious contenders to this throne. You know, in the Murdoch family, each of the three heirs, uh, there's two sons and a daughter that I'm aware of. I mean, they all have their absolutely legitimate qualifications and business accomplishments. And they all presumably also have deep benches of lawyers and advisors and PR people who help them propagate their individual public claims to the throne. And there was drama over who was going to be in charge of News Corp and all this kind of stuff. You know, but it settles out. I don't know if it settles out with winners and losers in that kind of simplistic reduction. But I guess the question is, in a show where the deck is always obviously stacked against the very people fighting for Logan's position, is, is it really baked in with any drama then? Like, these people are so ridiculous by and large. Shiv is a different case, but we'll discuss her in a second. But certainly Roman and Kendall are so ridiculous so as to never really be serious threats to what Logan Roy has. Yet the show kind of wants to present them at various times as, as threats to take over when it's just patently ridiculous. Now, I'd be the first person to say that very, it's pretty common that positions of power within media enterprises are often held by people who are perhaps best at playing a political game, not necessarily best at things like programming or running a business. You know, I'm reminded, I was just reading the new HBO oral history, which is very good. And in there, you have some very compelling personalities, uh, particularly Chris Albrecht, who, despite some very public flaws and difficult struggles with substance abuse and has an unerring eye and ear for programming at the time that he's in charge of HBO programming. And he's not particularly good at the other aspects of the corporate game. He's just focused on doing what he can do, which is making shows that make waves. And he did that arguably better than maybe anyone else in his position before or since. So there's a lot of other corporate kind of chicanery going on in the HBO book. And some of it is as silly as things that you might see in a series like Succession. But I like a little more true business content in my business shows. And it's hard not to feel like Succession would be a better show if the business side were paid a little bit more realistic attention to. I think the issue here, sir, is that 
Everyone fucking hates you. It's cloudy. It's sunny. You want to push through a massive, politically sensitive buy-up, and I'm reading this over my morning cappuccino. It says your family is a horror show and it's destroying America. <clears> hmm. <throat> Maybe we should buy this. <laughs> Kendall launched a lawsuit against you. You have fired half of your board. Your COO is a fucking joke. Oh. Bro, that's what people are saying. Who cares if it's true? People say that he's a coked up Dauphin that doesn't know shit from Shinola and that the two of you aren't even talking to each other, which I'm getting a vibe of. Now, I could care less, but even the advanced whispers of this local TV deal have people so mad at you that they're throwing piss at you on the street. Well, we don't know that it was actually piss. It was piss. You want to go on a shopping spree. I trust you, but can we please fix the visuals? This is a family business, but the family is fucked and it's hurting the stock. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You know, Logan offers Shiv the top spot, the CEO job, at least twice that I can remember, where the presidency is a third time. And each of those times, Shiv, who doesn't work within the company, the corporation, she just sort of shows up in the office and starts sort of assuming a role or trying to assume a role. Now, in real life, of course, she would have to become an employee of the organization and she would have to negotiate an employment contract for this position. And that would take months and months and months and months prior to being announced. So I'm not saying that the verisimilitude of the real world business life has to be a part of a series like this, because I'm aware that when you're writing a scripted drama or a scripted comedy, you need to have some creative license to avoid bogging down in the details. However, these salient points, I think, become plot flaws to me. I think a lot of people that are watching Succession are in or attached to perhaps the entertainment industry or the media business. And so that's why they and me enjoy a series like this. And we all probably have a modicum of awareness of how these things actually work. And to me, if you're going to set out to satirize this world, the satire is stronger the more foundationally sound the structure is built. So for example, in the final episode of season three, three of the kids finally band together and they figure out that the terms of Logan's divorce from their evil mother means that if they stick together and vote together, they, they are essential for the supermajority that Logan would need in order to rubber stamp certain things going on with the business that they don't agree with. But then in a convenient turn, it turns out that, of course, Logan is, I guess, one step ahead of them. And at the mother's wedding, he somehow gets the divorce agreement revised and changed with the help of the evil crone of a mother so that coup number two uh, is dashed. And, or I guess that's coup number three when they're all unified. Can't keep my coups straight. You have the first Kendall coup, you have the second Kendall coup, which is when he is sacrificed and supposed to make the announcement that uh, he is launching a all-out war against his father at the press conference. That's number two. And then number three would be this one where the, where the kids are going to get together in recognition of the fact that they're a supermajority. And in fact, 
Logan has revised and reopened the divorce agreement and somehow managed to take away the supermajority aspect. And that's what thwarts them in the final scene of the final episode of season three. Now, in reality, of course, it would take months. It would take years even. And the kids themselves would have to be apprised or even maybe have their lawyers involved with drafts and consulting on agreements and changes. I mean, it would take months. It takes months and years to close even small deals relative to what they're talking about in succession. We can stop you. And we will stop you. Blow this up. You need our vote for a change of control. Yeah. You need all of us. You need a supermajority and we can kill it. And we will. You're playing toy fucking soldiers. Go on. Fuck off. I have you beat, you morons. Well, no, because you need a supermajority. Well, well, no, because I need a supermajority. Caroline, you're on with Roman, Kendall, and Siobhan. Hi, Mom. Mom? All right, well, I don't necessarily want to do any more tonight, Logan. Your mother and I have been reviewing the terms of the divorce agreement. Mom, you fucked us. And we've agreed that the arrangements were a little antiquated. Oh, fuck, Mom, he got to you. Oh, seriously, Mom, already? What the fuck no, did you? I can't get into it, all right? I, I think everything will be fine. Red Kendall's dealing with it all. Mom, you just slit our throats. Please don't be angry. I, I think this is for the best. Peter's so excited. Oh, is he? Peter's excited. Great. I'm not sure it's been good for you all. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love you all. Bye. Oh, we just walked in on mom and dad fucking us. Thank you, Caroline. So the idea that this is done, uh, I guess, in real time, the day of, because I had at first thought like, well, may, they do make something an episode before where, or two, two or three episodes before where as to keep the ex-wife on side, Logan dispatches uh, Shiv or Roman. I think he dispatches Roman to make a deal with the mother and basically says, you know, I want to pay her between 10 and $50 million in order to keep on side so that I can thwart this attempted, you know, takeover that I'm facing. I'm not sure if the implication is supposed to be that this was done then with Logan being so attuned to ebbs and flows in the family that he saw down the road before they ever had any unity, that one day they might have unity and he needed to thwart that unity. If that is the intent, then the writers and the creators of the series should have put just a little refresher nugget in the very last episode that flashed back to that moment so that we as the viewers could understand that that's when it's supposed to have happened. I might buy that. But it doesn't do that, and it just presents it as if he just literally accomplished it that day. Like, somehow had these complicated contractual corporate governance documents and divorce documents opened up, revised, signed, sealed, delivered within a matter of minutes, if not hours. And it's just so unrealistic as to be kind of ridiculous. And that's, that's kind of a problem that I have. Another example is any of the times when Shiv finally gets given the top spot by her father, as I said, she just goes in and starts to report work. But had she just consulted a lawyer and drafted an employment agreement, then whenever Logan changes his mind, guess what? He doesn't get to change his mind. 
<laughs> because she has an employment agreement and she has contractually obligated duties. Now, I don't want to bog down in this stuff because I'm in talking about it, you're going to be saying, oh God, come on. Like, it's just a story that we're enjoying about this dysfunctional family. Do you have to really be so literal about it? Well, you know, I think you do. I think it would help the series transcend its satiric origins and really get at something even deeper, truer, better if it was a little bit more realistic. However, even saying that, if it's more realistic, you pretty much lose everything that makes the characters of Kendall, Roy, Tom, Greg, uh, Willa, on and on, right? That makes them special because none of those people are plausible real world people per se. And in many of those cases, we love that about the show. And that's what we want. So it's a bit of six of one, half dozen of the other. Just to talk a little bit about the individual kids, because I think that's something that's super interesting to me. Kendall Roy, Jeremy Strong, uh, my, my most recent guest, Rick Brown, offered up a methodology when we were talking about the Warriors where he said, how he kind of views filmed entertainment stuff or any entertainment stuff is, would I recommend this to other people? And that's kind of the measuring stick that he uses. I think that's pretty good. I'm usually so self-centered that I don't really think about how, whether anyone else is going to like it. I just worry about whether I'm going to like it. But my final answer on Succession would be absolutely yes, I would recommend it. And mostly because of the performance that Jeremy Strong gives as Kendall. He is by far turning in the most nuanced and consistently interesting performance on screen. And you feel the collective weight of all the characters' bad decisions, you know, as if the actor, Jeremy Strong, is, is keeping track of the uh, misdeeds on a very highly calibrated internal digital scale. And when Kendall finally cracks into a million pieces at the end of the final episode in season three, the payoff there is so amazing because the actor has been keeping track and keeping score of those misdeeds. I'm not saying that the scripts necessarily keep track of them in the same way. I just think that's the actor is bringing that. Overall, it's a vanity-free performance in that the actor is not pressing the creators to feature or turn his character into a good guy because that's what the actor's ego wants. I think that Jeremy Strong stays so true to the essence of Kendall's damage. And in doing so, he contributes an arc to the character where really I'm not sure the writing often provides that. But, you know, his Kendall's cluelessness when, when faced with so many things is such a, I don't want to say it's a brave choice because it's acting. So I think real bravery is saved for, you know, life and death situations. But as in, in the context of being an actor and being the centerpiece of a show, it is brave to willingly and so deliberately embody and impart the cringy cluelessness that Kendall Roy often brings to the simplest of human interactions. And that's really where the show kind of hangs on this knife edge kind of brilliantly. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's this commitment to the the kind of character that I think transcends this whole series to me. I just think he's an amazing, amazing actor. And the things that he's doing on screen are so complicated and interesting and often hard to watch. 
And they run the gamut between real, genuine, soul-stirring emotion and depth and the most slapsticky kind of cringy comedy uh, where you're following a character who can't help himself but kind of like blow things up. And at various points over the three seasons, he has so many different type personalities in, in the character. You know, the personality before he begins using drugs again, contrasted with the personality he evinces when he is using drugs again. The personality post-car accident uh, with the personality post-coup number two, when he's up again and he's manic and he's denying and ignoring the advice of obviously smarter people like his lawyer, played by Sana Lathan. Uh, when he's so full of himself that he's kind of self-destructing and he's not aware of it, it's such an incredible high-wire act that you just can't help but, but, but be rooted to it. My boy Squiggle cooked up this beat for me. Check it. Born on the North Bank, king of the East Side, 50 years strong, now he's rolling in a sick rod, handmade suits, raking in loot. Five-star general, y'all best oh, no. salute. Yo, bitches be no. happy, but the king oh, is no. Ken no. W.A. I read it. It is burning my eyes, but I cannot look away. L to the OG. Dude be the OG. And he playing. Playing like a pro. C. L to the OG. Dude be the OG. And he playing. Playing like a pro, make some noise. A1. To me, he's the reason I'll keep watching with a strong secondary reason being Matthew McFadden as Tom Wamsgans. I mean, this actor is just so amazing to me and I think gets closest to really, I don't know if it's embodying or transcending. I guess the jury's out. But his performance has that similar touch of real pathos and real feeling and emotion with such a slapsticky component that this person who's very hard to take seriously and very hard to imagine being taken seriously in a corporate media environment also has all this other stuff going on that we're really aware of and that moves us. And it kind of ruthlessly, like at least for me, you know, when he puts the knife into Shiv at the end of season three, you're kind of like, yeah, go for it, man. Why not? Like, they're going to do it to you. You might as well do it to these people first. So Matthew McFadden, I mean, my God, he's just amazing. An incredible actor. So many great scenes with everyone. Whoever he's with, I guess that's the thing. Like, whoever he's with in a scene, it's interesting and it's different. I'm not a hippie, Shiv. I don't want to stuff a dildo up my. I don't want. I don't want to do threesomes. Okay. On well. our wedding night, bang, Shanghai into a into a open borders free fuck trade deal. It, uh, it was just an idea. Well, that's that's a biggie just to throw in at the altar. You know, I do. I do, but I do maybe also demand to gobble the odd side dick. Gobble the odd side dick. I don't think it was cool what you did. I just, I think, you know, I think a lot of the time 
if I think about it, I think a lot of the time I'm really pretty unhappy. What are you saying? I don't know. I love you, I do. I just, uh, I wonder if, I wonder if the sad I'd be without you would be less than the sad I get from being with you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Tom. So the way he is with Shiv, the way he is with Logan, the way he is with anyone, it's incredible and so hilarious. And so many things happen to this character that are just, just unbelievable. So the fan service, the, the, the Greg, uh, Tom scenes, yes, we all want those. We're going to get more of them. But I'm curious to see where Tom goes in season four. Roman Roy, you know, Kieran Culkin was one of the first things I, I couldn't figure out when I started watching it. It wasn't what I thought good acting was. I thought, this person isn't a real actor. I don't know what this is. Now, you have to watch a few episodes to kind of have it sink in and realize that Actually, what's happening is Kieran Culkin, the actor, is hitting the ground running in the character of Roman Roy before you, or at least I, the audience member, was able to figure out what the hell was going on. So that's not a flaw of the actor. That's the flaw of the viewer. That's my flaw. He's this Baroque devil that has this kind of, you know, when like Pigpen and Charlie Brown sort of travels with this giant whirling cloud? Well... Roman has like this giant whirling miasma of psychological damage and trauma that fills any room he enters. So he's not a believable corporate character, but he is a very believable, I'm not sure is the right word, plausible is not the right word because we haven't really seen anyone like him before on camera. He is himself, wholly himself, and it took time in the series for me to feel that I understood him enough to have him make plausible sense to the extent that he ever does. Shiv is, you know, presented as competent, as the only one of the kids who has her own actual career and is seen to be demonstrably good at her career. She's married, so she's presented as certainly capable of human relationships, even if the very first scenes of she and Tom kind of tell us and signal that this is not all it's cracked up to be. But You'd be forgiven for thinking many times over the course of all three seasons, like, just give it to her. Give her the top job. Let her do it. She's clearly the only one who could do it. But even she has some blind spots relative to herself. And she's, of course, a woman in Logan Roy's misogynistic world. But as I noted before, like, you know, a good employment lawyer would have solved a lot of problems for her. Just get it on paper, Shiv. I think Alan Ruck is fantastic as Conroy. I love the character. The ranch feels so right. The hooker girlfriend story feels kind of silly in one note. I'm not sure it really needed to sustain across three seasons. Feels like I would have rather had seen Connor go different, go something, do go somewhere else. You know, I don't know where, but I feel like we're still milking the same joke and the same kind of uh 
pregnant pause of a storyline with this character. It never really comes out in the way that you sort of anticipate it to come out to take away either his presidential ambition uh, or thwart some of his uh, opportunities within the company. And as Connor Roy, as a character, kind of tilts further and further towards being totally deluded, I just for one feel like I've lost a little something. You know, I found him really compelling originally as the, the, the one kid who stays out of all this drama, even as he's kind of self-centered and delusional himself. But I've kind of felt he, he's become more one-dimensional as the series has gone on as opposed to less one-dimensional, which is the opposite of what I felt with people like Roman and Kendall. And also, a lot of the other ancillary characters, I'm, again, I'm still waiting. And it's, it feels like a long wait now that we're at the end of season three. What's Marcia's play in all of this stuff? Like, she does make a move, which is renegotiating her financial arrangement with Logan after he falls for Raya. And, you know, she comes back in order to shore up his side, but obviously has demands. And you see her with her lawyer making pretty ruthless demands that she knows she's going to get away with. This is the language that, you know, Logan obviously understands, maybe the only language he understands. But like, what's the end play? What's the game here? There's a lot of things that kind of like get brought up and then dropped, like Shiv's investigation into her background. Uh, what is her ultimate play? You know, she does horrible things too and gets away with it. And is there comeuppance coming for Marsha in season four? Again, do we have to wait so long for these things? Um, I, I compare it again to a, a show like Gamora, which kind of ruthlessly handles its ancillary and supporting characters in a truthful fashion by basically just dismissing, killing, dismembering, getting rid of them, uh, because that's all true to life in the world in which these people are playing. And again, a lot of what's going on in succession to me seems like hey, we love all these characters. We got to kind of keep them doing the same thing because that's what people want. And uh, I'd love to see it go somewhere. You know, is Jerry saving up Roman's dick pics for just the right moment in season four? Maybe, <laughs> but that's such a tantalizing storyline that's kind of dropped through much of uh, season three. So I'm curious to see where it goes. I would love it to coalesce in season four into something that, kind of transcends even what it's set out to do. But within the confines of itself, it has presented wholly original characters of the sort I don't really recall seeing put on screen before. And I do care about the characters and I want to see what happens to them. But I worry that what we kind of want to have happen, I'm not even sure there's a good, there's, is there a good person to root for in the, in the show? Um, you know, even Greg uh, is becoming kind of a douche and you can't even really root for him to end up somehow being the CEO of everything. So uh, I'm curious where it goes in season four. I'd like to see it shift into a few other gears. I'd like to see more from Logan Roy. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see him change and express more about what the issues are and less hinting. And maybe even though I was complaining about this before, you know, if you're going to feed us stuff, feed it to us. Like, I don't want to wait five seasons to get fed everything. Uh, I think you got to dole out the morsels a bit more along the way. So I'm really, really glad I finally got over all my weird issues and, and jumped in. I thoroughly enjoyed watching it. I laughed out loud almost every episode. I cringed horrifically during things like Kendall's birthday party, which is just got so many brilliant 
moments and asides. I feel the seductive pull of traveling exclusively by helicopter, private jet, and chauffeured Range Rover everywhere that you go. I think they send up and satirize the cocooned existence so perfectly. Um, and I'm hoping that in season four, we get the business stuff a little bit more paid attention to, because I do think that's evolving really over the course of season three. And I'd like to see a little bit more storyline progression for some of the ancillary characters. So anyway, for whatever that's worth, that's my take so far. And I'll be back next week with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 